worship in the church where I was on staff for a few years. I first came out of seminary. I was wet behind the ears and uh, young and foolish and uh, had a lot to learn. And so I was serving on staff there. We were able to join and actually see some people that remembered us and we remembered them and a uh, really wonderful opportunity. We also saw our son finally graduate from college. And so he's uh, setting up uh, his, his camp there and uh, living up in the northern Boston area. So we appreciate your prayers for Eric. Uh, let's uh, turn in your Bibles this morning as we finish now, I promise, we'll be finishing this uh, series on Matthew. We're going to go back and do chapter 24, 25 some other time, but uh, today is our last in the series here on Matthew 28, the last chapter, and we have been, now this is the sixth part, we've been looking at this great commission, uh, and I'm just going to read verses 16 to 20, we're emphasizing verse 20 uh, this morning. So I hope you have your Bible there. The page number is 1,184 for the Pew Bible, uh, Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16. The 11 disciples, this is after Jesus has risen from the dead, 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, for lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, I know that it has been a delight of my heart in anticipating this message, this sermon. Lord, you have once again reminded me of the wondrous encouragement found in these words. I pray that you would help all of us, all of your people today, Lord. May they know encouragement in hearing you speak these words to their souls this day. We pray that your word by your spirit would bring encouragement and hope and zeal for those who are in need of hearing your words of reassurance. Lord, may we have ears to hear it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Just before Jesus concluded his earthly ministry, he commissioned his 11 apostles to make disciples of all of the people groups of the world, all of the language groups of the world, which we've heard the nobles talk today about the people who are in there in southern Sudan. There are different language groups, different groups and tribes who inhabit those areas. Every language group in the world is to be discipled. And so Rather than sitting around and waiting for Jesus' return, his disciples are to be mobilized. We are to be people who go and take the life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ to all types of lost people uh, in, 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 in evangelizing them and then eventually baptizing them. And we've looked in previous weeks at the idea of Jesus charged his followers to not just make converts, but those converts were to be then uh, publicly professing their faith in the waters of baptism, acknowledging openly that they are now united to Jesus Christ by faith and they're united with the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God. And Jesus also mandated that his disciples follow up those who make such profession in baptism. And they're to be taught. And they're to be taught to follow Jesus and to do what he commands. And they're to instruct converts in the basics of doctrines of Scripture so that their minds are renewed and so that they let their lives are progressively becoming more and more displaying the fruit of holiness and godliness 
That's really the Great Commission. Now, this commission is indeed inclusive, all-inclusive, and it is extensive. It is challenging, no, no doubt, and it is a huge undertaking. And it must have seemed, when Jesus first spoke it, it must have seemed absolutely impossible. Think about it. Eleven ordinary men set out to begin this monumental task of making disciples of all of the people groups of the world and thereby impacting the entire world for Christ. It's an overwhelming mission, to say the least. And I've been thinking about what it would have been like had I been one of those apostles on that day, on that mountain, standing there listening to Jesus, the resurrected Savior. And if I had been one of those people, I think I would have said to myself things like this. Maybe you would have done the same. There is no way. I'm saying to myself now. I would never say this to Christ, of course. The task, I would say, is just too big against the inevitable opposition that we're going to face. I'm not adequate for this huge undertaking. And knowing that people are not going to welcome us and we're going to run into opposition, we're surely going to fail. Given my poor track record up to this point, some of these apostles must have said, there's not much hope of success. Surely that must have been the kind of thoughts that's coming to their minds. And Jesus, knowing the immensity and the difficulty of this task, included in his commission this wonderful promise. Oh, what a wonderful promise it is. He addressed the fears of his followers. He addressed their propensity to fail by giving his followers a precious word of reassurance. Look at verse 20. Behold, I like the word behold better rather than the word low. He is saying, look at this, notice this, behold, I am with you always, and literally that means I am with you all the days, is the literal translation there even to the end of the age. Now, in our remaining time together this morning, I want us to consider three things. I want us to consider, first of all, the person who made the promise. That's absolutely critical. Secondly, I want us to consider the proof of his promise from the book of Acts, and we'll look at a couple examples of that. And thirdly, I want us to think of practical implications about that promise to all of us who are sitting here this morning. So, the first one is the person who made that promise. Think for a moment what weight this promise would have had if it had been made by someone like Peter, who earlier had said, Lord, I will never, I will never uh, forsake you. And yet, what did he do? Within 24 hours, less than 24 hours, he did just that. If it had been made by John or Matthew or any of the other apostles, what kind of weight would that promise have had? None of those men and no one else would have been able to keep such a promise. No mere mortal could have offered such encouragement. And Jesus clearly is unique, and he is uniquely capable of keeping this promise. And that's why I think it's fascinating, as I've looked at the text carefully in the Greek, you'll notice in the Greek that every verb that says, like, I am, that verb contains the subject, I, it contains the action, I am. But if you want to emphasize something, you can add an additional pronoun. And this has that situation. He says, I myself am with you always. He's emphasizing the fact that he says, I am with you always. Now that's fascinating as I think about it because the one who made the promise in verse 20 is unlike any other person 
who has ever given you or made a promise to you before. Months before Jesus was born of Mary, what was said of this unique God and man? Jesus was given the title Emmanuel, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Emmanuel, God with us. And when Jesus reassured his disciples of his presence, he's once again reiterating a claim about himself. He's saying, I am God. I am Emmanuel. I am with you always. I am affirming again my divine nature, my true identity. It cannot be denied. And Jesus has existed from all eternity, and he will remain with his people during every day, every week, every month, every year, from the time he made the promise to the time of the consummation. Now, we've recently come back from a very significant family event in our life, a real milestone. Uh, we've had the blessing of seeing uh, all three of our children uh, finish their college now. And I've looked back through some of the pictures, and I've been able to see, again, the goodness of God. Oh, how I thank God. He has been so good to our family. And to see our youngest now finished, and I looked back at the photos, and I realized there were some very significant people who were able to be a part of some of these celebrations in years ago that were not able to be at this most recent commencement ceremony, reflected on the fact that they've been unable to join us in that, in that joyous occasion. My father's no longer with us in this world. Joyce's mother no longer in this world. My mother and Joyce's father unable to travel about those kind of long uh, trips by car. And time takes its toll on us, doesn't it? People that were so critically important in your life who were there for all of the big occasions of your life, you find that they're not there as life moves forward on some things. But I want you to look at this text and think what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that he is not bound by time. He's not bound by the space limitations that so oftentimes limit us and other people who are making promises and who have been in your life at other times and other seasons of your life and you wish for them to be with you throughout all your life. But Jesus Christ is unique and that He is one who possesses all authority, He said earlier in the text. He also is the one who reigns over time. And there will never be a time, my friend, there will never be a situation where Jesus will go back on this promise. You can bank on it. I can't make that promise to you and anyone else in your family or anyone else that you know as a fellow believer, whoever it is that they say, I'll be here for you, they cannot guarantee they'll do that. But Jesus promised. And if you think about the second aspect of Jesus' promise, he was not only Emmanuel, God with us, he also is presented in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 18, verse 20, Jesus spoke to his disciples earlier, and he said, listen, I'm also going to be with you when you're trying to untangle some uh, thorny situations and where there's some sin issues that, that oftentimes will creep up and cause offense among fellow believers. He says, when you're trying to resolve those issues, what does it say? Matthew 18, 20, he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, that's the two or three who are doing the what? Following up, trying to, to win their brother back when there's been a sin issue, where the two or three are gathered, Jesus says, there I am in the midst of you. What's he saying? He's saying that Jesus not only came as the Jesus who is with us to redeem his people, chapter 1, he is also Jesus saying, I am with you to what? To unify and purify my people. In chapter 18 of Matthew, he is also, Jesus is with us to 
enable us to be with us as we disciple the nations. You say, how does that look? How does that work out? How can Jesus be with us? I'm not going to be able to fully untangle that one. That's a mystery that I could say. I don't know exactly how to uh, resolve it all. Jesus does have a resurrection body now. But I also know that there's a sense in which Jesus indwells us, and I think he does it through his Holy Spirit. And let me just show you a text here in John 14. Would you find your way to John 14, page 1282 in your pew Bible? You see, Jesus anticipated the fact that he, in his earthly ministry, was going to withdraw from his people. He was not going to continue on as he had before. And the night before he died on the cross, he spoke at length about the challenges that his disciples are going to face. And he assured them, you are not going to be left alone. He provided them another comforter. Look at John 14, beginning in verse 16. John 14, verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another, parenthesis, another of the same kind, another of the same kind, helper. What's a helper? One who's called alongside, one who encourages. I will, he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and he that is the Holy Spirit will be what? In you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will behold me no more. But you will behold me because I live. You live also. Notice in verse 20 now. In that day, you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I, what? In you. Jesus says, I'm going to be in you. I don't understand exactly what all that means, but it means that there's some sense in which Jesus is with me and with his people. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. You see, Christ dwells within believers through the Holy Spirit. Another text I'll just have, think I've included in your notes that would be helpful for you to look at in the future is Romans 8, verses 10 and 11. Romans 8, 10 and 11. He says there, the Spirit of God dwells in believers. That's verse 10. Verse 11 is, he says, if Christ dwells in you, and the if there should be understood as since, since Christ dwells in you, you know for sure you have the Holy Spirit also in you as well. And then verse four, chapter 4, verse 13 of 1 John, we read this. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Somehow God, in the mystery of the triune nature of God, the Spirit dwells us, ministers to us, the presence of Christ with us. Jesus assured His followers that as they carry out the commission to make disciples, He will be with them by means of the Holy Spirit each moment of every day including the first century when he made that statement, and including the 21st century, the entire time of this great commission that's being taken and put in practice to the time when the great consummation will come and Jesus returns. Jesus indwells his people, not occasionally, and not just in the moments when you are doing well, when you feel as though you've made great strides and great progress, but also 
in the moments when you feel like you're not doing well, there's still the sense that Jesus is with you. He's with his people every day, always, until the end of the age. Jesus has never broken that promise, and he never will. Hallelujah. That's the person who has made that promise. He will never go back on it. Now, secondly, I want us to think just for a moment about the proof of this promise. I want you to see the the actual evidence of that in the book of Acts. This is fascinating to me. It's one thing to affirm it up here and say, okay, that's the truth. Then let's look at an example in Scripture to see how it played out. Turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 9, page 1306 in the Pew Bible. Here in the book of Acts, we find a couple of examples of Jesus and his presence and being with his people. The first, we hear of this individual, a blasphemous, violent Pharisee named Saul. And he's headed to a city called Damascus, and his intention is to arrest the followers of Jesus, who are called followers of the way. That was the code language for these Christ followers. Now pick it up in the record here in Acts chapter 9, verse 3 where Luke records what happened on this trip to Damascus. It came about that as Saul journeyed as he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now that should raise the question, first of all, who's me? Who's speaking? Well, it becomes more clear. Saul said, Who are you, Lord? Because clearly it's a voice from heaven, so he's confessing this person is great. He's confessing the Lord in that sense. And he said, the voice, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now think about what he's saying there. Jesus Christ confronted Saul with an amazing accusation. Whenever Saul harassed and arrested these first century followers of Jesus, he was actually doing that to Jesus himself. How could he say that? Because Jesus is in and with his people. No matter what is happening among them, he is in and with his people. And true believers enjoy inseparable union with Jesus Christ. Jesus is in and with his disciples. In that first century, and in this century. And Jesus is with them when they suffer. He also suffers. When his disciples are mistreated, Jesus, in a sense, is mistreated. And when the persecution by the Jewish leadership or the pagan Roman emperors was unleashed on the early church, Jesus never abandoned them. Every day, in every place, Jesus is with his followers. That was the lesson of Acts 9. Now let's fast forward, turn in your Bible then, to the story of Acts 18, which we read earlier. Acts 18. And now we've, 17 years have taken place approximately from the account of Paul's, Saul's conversion. And now we're picking up the story. Paul is, uh, Saul has now taken his, his uh, he had three names, by the way. I, I just recently read an article about this. He has three names. Saul was the name, again, for a Jewish person. You have the first king of Israel. That's a great name. He was also with a Roman family. He was Paulus, was his Roman name, also given to him at birth. So he's now beginning to use the Paul name because he's ministering out among people who are Roman citizens and in the Gentile areas of the uh, known world. And so here he is, Paul, 
He's a missionary now. He's an apostle. He's been traveling around. He's on a second journey. And he faced a number of difficulties at this juncture of his ministry. If you look at verse 3, if you read between the lines, it says that he met up with this other couple who were sent out from Rome. They had to get out of there. And they're taking up the tent making. And they're not just doing it for fun, my friends. They're doing it to make money. Paul is in need of money. And he is now earning it while working with this couple there in Acts 18, in, in Corinth. And so he's short on funds. And this is about the time when, when Timothy is going to come back and Silas, and they're going to bring from Macedonia a, genuine, a generous gift. He has not received that thus far. He comes a little later in the text there. So he's working and trying to make some money. He's alone at that moment. Then they come back. These two fellow workers come back. And here is Paul. He has been run out of more towns than you could possibly count. He has been beaten almost in every town he was in or imprisoned. And here he's facing again what? The same scenario is unfolding. He's ministering in Corinth, and he's run into a strong opposition among his fellow Jews in that Corinthian synagogue. And in verse 6, they are throwing abuse at him. Now, Paul must have, I believe, at this point, begun to have the signs of someone who's becoming discouraged. Perhaps he's thinking, oh, not again, come on. How many times do we have to go through this? You know, enough already, please. I think he's becoming at the point of vulnerable to the fact that he's afraid again of what's going to happen and also discouraged. And if you see the pattern, and he'd seen it a number of times, local folks, a mob forms, they scream out saying, take this man and hell, let's treat him the way he deserves. He's saying things that are blasphemous, blah, 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 blah. They bring him out to the court, they haul him to the court, they sentence him, they've beaten him, they throw him in jail. He's been there a number of times. At this low point, Look at verse 9 and 10. Jesus, in a vision, speaks to Paul. And what does he say? Verse 9. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer. What does that indicate? He's had some fear going on. He has been afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent and watch this. For I... And by the way, it's same, same emphatic use. I myself am with you. I myself am with you, Paul. No man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. What a great word of encouragement to Paul. It's as if Jesus says to him, I, the King of kings who called you and who appointed you to be my apostle, I myself am with you at all times, Paul. And that includes this difficult time. Now, what effect did that promise have on Paul? Well, it doesn't really say in the text. And Paul, you know, felt a great zeal in his spirit and doesn't talk about that kind of description of that. But if you just look at what Paul did, notice his ministry there in verse 11. How long did he stay in that immoral city of Corinth? Probably one of the tougher cities to do ministry. It's like modern-day Las Vegas, modern-day Amsterdam, you name it. Everything was going, everything was, uh, was happening that was, could possibly be done. It was all legal and free, and they were doing it. He stayed there 18 months. 
Now, for Paul's record, that is an incredible change in his pattern of ministry. And from that point moving forward, Paul slowed down in his ministry avenues. Now, partly he had to, because he, he left from, uh, uh, from there, he went to Ephesus and spent two years, but then he spent two years after he got arrested in Jerusalem in Caesarea under prison, uh, sort of holding him there, and then he spent several years in Rome. He slowed down his ministry uh, a pace. He wasn't just headed out of town all the time. And Jesus' promise to Paul helped him persist. It helped him to persevere in faithful service, which resulted in many, many people being won to Christ. And not only won to Christ, but he was able to stay there long enough to, because of this encouraging promise, <clears throat> to speak the truth into these young believers' lives and to teach them the Word, to pray with them and for them, and to help get them firmly grounded into Jesus Christ and His promises and the work that He did on their behalf. And so Jesus says what? I am with you. It is not merely a promise that's limited to the 11 apostles. It was also given to the Apostle Paul. And my friend, it's also given to all of us as well. We need to understand this is a promise for you and for me. And that moves us now to our third and final point. What are the practical implications of this? If all we think that it's a true statement and it's way up here, and we don't understand how it affects us in our daily life, then we've missed out on an important component here. And I'm just going to suggest several ways. I hope you'll think of others as you meditate upon this text. The practical implications here? Well, this encouraging promise of Jesus' abiding presence is not meant to make us feel smug or superior to other people. It's meant to bolster our faith. It's meant to bolster our zeal so that when we feel overwhelmed or when we feel we're at the end of our rope, here comes the encouragement. I am with you always. I myself am with you always. It's meant to embolden us so that we would have courage to trust in Christ and to take risks that we would not normally take Instead of, if we were sitting home pursuing our own dreams, now we're doing what Christ wants us to do. We're Christ followers, and we're following the leading of the Holy Spirit, and we're willing to take risks. Because why? I am with you. Always to the end of the age. I have an example I'd like to give of someone who really took this to heart. It's by John Patton. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's a very well-known missionary who left his homeland in Scotland and followed the call of the Holy Spirit to bring the gospel to the cannibalistic tribes of the New Hebrides. You say, where is that? New Hebrides. Uh, that was a title of some islands that were given to uh, them, located uh, two-thirds of the way from Hawaii all the way down to uh, Australia. Two-thirds of the way down are these little uh, islands there, and that's where John Patton went in the late 19th century. Now, Patton displayed remarkable uh, courage. If you ever read the book, I meant to bring it with me, uh, he wrote his autobiography, and uh, it reads as if you are reading the script of a Steven Spielberg movie. I am not exaggerating when I say that. You read it, and almost every page, he is in danger. He is running, he is escaping from those who are seeking to kill him. And they're not just seeking to kill him just to get rid of him. They're seeking to kill him because they will what? They will consume him. Okay, these are cannibals. And it's already happened to several missionaries in these islands before. That he knew exactly what he was going into 
when he went there. So anyway, uh, the point is he has faced constant danger and frequent threats upon his life. Now, what was the source of his courage? How did he get through all that? It, became, it was because his personal fellowship with Jesus Christ through faith in the promise, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, I've listed a quote in your bulletin. I'll let you read that some other time. I'm going to give you another quote from his autobiography as he describes a situation where he's sitting in a tree, having uh, been given that opportunity by some tr uh, local tribal leader who says, you hide up there and we'll sort of cover for you. And he's wondering, is this guy fooling me or is he serious? Is he going to give me up and just enjoy me for dinner or is he really going to protect me? He doesn't know. So he's up in this tree, and he has hundreds of angry natives that are hunting for his life. Now, here's a quote. Being entirely at the mercy of such doubtful and vacillating friends, he says, I don't know if I can trust this, this tribal chief, I, though perplexed, felt it best to obey. In other words, I climbed up the tree. I climbed up the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but yesterday, he's writing. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages, and yet I sat there among the branches as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw me nearer, draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly to my soul than when the moonlight flickered among the chestnut tree, chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Now listen to this. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy His consoling friendship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, at midnight in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend, he asks? Have you a friend that will not fail you then? Unquote. It's not just for missionaries, my friend, who are among savage people. It's for you and me, too. Patton truly believed that promise. And you read that book, I'm telling you, it is amazing how he saw God uh, help him through those dangerous times. I want to talk about us, though, right here for I want to ask, are there anyone here who's feeling here overwhelmed by the challenges that you feel in serving Jesus where he has called you? Are you discouraged? Are you dismayed by the challenges that you face, perhaps, in your marriage? Perhaps you're married to an unbeliever. Perhaps your spouse has recently passed away. Perhaps you're now divorced and you never wanted to be a divorced. Perhaps most of your friends have married and you remain single with no prospect on the horizon. Jesus says to you, my friends, I am with you always. Are you worried about the continued stubbornness of a child that you have under your care? A child who rejects your instruction. A child whose willful rebellion is becoming more and more pronounced. A child who you troubled in your mind as you think about, are they ever going to be trained? Will they ever be under my loving discipline? Jesus says, I am with you always. Perhaps you're bewildered this morning as to how to respond to the latest disturbing actions 
or attitudes of your teenager or the young adult that you've gotten to the point where you've sort of launched them in life and you cannot control them any longer. You don't have any kind of sway over them. And you're feeling very bewildered and very concerned about the direction they're headed. Do you hear Jesus saying to you, I am with you always. Maybe you're flabbergasted by the challenge of making disciples. When you think about investing your life in people around you, people who are in need of following Christ, and you think about your family, you think about your friends, you think about your neighbors, your schoolmates, even the members, our fellow church members here, and you sometimes you think, will this person ever really get it? Will they really be committed to Jesus? Will they really follow Jesus with all their heart? Jesus says, I am with you always. Maybe you're discouraged by your failings. I know that's for me oftentimes. You get discouraged with the propensity you have to give in to fear. You give in to self-pity various days of your life. You give in to peer pressure and anxiety. What is Jesus saying to you? I am with you always. Maybe you're afraid to speak of Christ. And you know what it is to have those feelings of, of great fear and, and discomfort and you're becoming very shy and all of a sudden your mouth is dry and you're just knowing you need to say something about Jesus. There's a door that opened right in front of you and you're like, do I really say it now? And you think about your unsaved friends, your co-workers and your classmates. And you say, I don't know if I can share what Christ is doing in my heart and life. I am with you always. Do you feel all alone? against the onslaught of a godless culture. As our world and the values of this world and this age begin to squeeze you into its mold, Jesus says, I'm with you always. Maybe you're facing change. Change as you're aging. You find yourself having to move to a new situation in life. And you're facing a new school, perhaps. You're facing a new job, or you're facing the fact that you need to find another job, and you've got to make a major change in your life, and you need to have the dynamics of relationships around you are changing. Jesus says to you, I am with you always. Are you dealing with mockery? Are you dealing with rejection and persecution as the follower of Jesus? Take comfort in knowing that Jesus is with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, there's some other situation I'm facing. My friend, you, you write your own situation, and then you add the end of it, what? I am with you always. I came across a very helpful quote by Michael Green in which he thinks about the significance of this promise that Jesus made. He says this, When the Lord commands, He enables. His enabling is His presence. If we were aware and conscious of the presence of the living, all-conquering King of kings and Lord of lords, if he knew and were confident of his presence with us, how would your life be different? Let's pray. Most gracious Lord and Savior, how we thank you that you are the promise-keeping Son of God, Emmanuel. How we thank you that you, Lord Jesus, do not just tell us a lot of things that we're to be doing and then just disappear and say, I'm going to abandon you and treat you like an orphan. But Lord, we thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit, 
We thank you that your Holy Spirit makes us aware of and enables us to know of your abiding presence with us in all situations, at all times. And Lord, I just pray that as we come to your table today that we might have a special sense of the presence of you, Lord Jesus, the risen Savior, Lord, and coming King. Lord, may we have a, a, a renewed sense of, of confidence knowing that you can work in our situation, in our midst, because you're with us. And I pray, Lord, that we might have a, by your Spirit, that your presence would become a powerful change agent in us, giving us zeal, giving us courage, giving us hope, giving us boldness, giving us a per perseverance and tenacity to go on. We pray that you would do a mighty work in us. We pray in Jesus' name.